0: to School Britannia, the podcast where two Aussies teach Brits their own history. This is my friend Claire. And this is my friend Ellie. How are you, Claire? I'm good, how are you? Ah oh, yeah, how enjoying are my Sunday. Good, how was your Halloween? Oh well, you know, pretty spooky. Extra, I, extra spooky. Extra spooky. I actually, you know what I did, I had a bath I read ghost stories. Nice. Um, I'm just obsessed. There's this guy called Sheridan Le Fanu. I'm absolutely certain that is a name that he made up for himself (laughs) to sound more spooky. But he used to write ghost stories in newspapers that were like um, serials. Yeah. yeah. And I've got a compilation book of them. And they're the dorkiest 19th century ghost (laughs) stories. But some of them are genuinely terrifying. And I read my favorite one. On Halloween, which it's is about being these- appropriate. It was so good. It's about these two medical students who rent a house in Dublin and it's very, very haunted <laughs> with the ghost of this judge who used to hang people just for anything, for stealing a loaf of bread kind of vibe. Um, Why but hang them when you could just send them to Australia. Exactly, Claire. <sighs> Um, but he, like, manifests himself as this giant rat. Oh, with my God. I it, it sounds ridiculous. Isn't it a
1: rat with, like, one of those judges' wigs and a gavel? <laughs>
0: Imagine. <laughs> no, it's just this rat with a very evil countenance. Uh, wow. Mm. I'm spooked. It, it's actually a very well-constructed ghost story. So I had a bath, I read my ghost story, fell asleep, had no bad dreams. Great. Ooh, what about you? I ate nachos and watched kung fu movies. Perfect. It was great. Yeah, yeah, we were
1: supposed to watch um, Rocky Horror Picture Show in honor of the day, but um, the very legal version of Rocky Horror Picture Show that I had on my computer did not work. Oh,
0: no. (laughs) But it was so legal. So legal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was disappointing. Uh,
1: The kung fu movie was great. Good. Yeah. um, I also had no bad dreams and saw no ghosts.
0: Fabulous. I call that a Halloween win. Same. We also, the weekend, the Halloween weekend, I guess? Halloween weekend. weekend, Halloween weekend. We and our very cool mates got together for our Shakespeare reading club. Nerd club. Nerd club. And we read Macbeth. For extra, extra spooky vibes. Yes. And we did an excellent job. You. You did an excellent job. I think job. we all did an excellent job. We did, Claire. yes,
1: but they're not in the room with me,
0: so... <laughs> you don't have to, <laughs> have to Yeah. <laughs> i don't need to boost their egos today <laughs> claire's sarcastic Macbeth stole the show thank you but um, that's a lie it was your cackling witches that really sealed the my deal very embarrassing cackling i didn't realize how embarrassing i was being till i saw a recording of myself the next day and almost died of shame they were phenomenal I- the
1: witches are the best bit of Macbeth, and you and jane and who else played witches Gabby, oh emma emmy, emma did a great witch emmy Emma and Gabby just became one person. Right? <laughs> Emma played a great witch. All of you just like really put some I extra mean, spooky vibes into
0: everyone it. Everyone who got a chance at a witch really killed it. Yeah. Did such a good job. It was great. It was yeah. really fun. It was fun. Yeah. So I think
1: we had a I think we celebrated Halloween perfectly.
0: Yay. Nailed
1: it. <laughs> Um, But some extra fun things happened this week as well. Mm. Uh, We recorded a feminist walking tour of Edinburgh with Hidden Tracks. We did. And it was released this week. Mm -hmm. So if you would like to know the wonderful feminist history of Edinburgh, you can go to the
0: iTunes Apple App Store place. It only works if you have an iPhone for the moment. It's not available on Android. But luckily... If you're an Android user like me, you can listen to it on Spotify. Spotify. So, but if you download the app and you're in Edinburgh, it gives mm, you the direction. Yes, which yes. is really cool. So you can do like a proper walking tour around Edinburgh to the sound of our voices. Learning all about cool feminist ladies,
1: doing cool feminist lady stuff. Yes,
0: do it. And
1: then you can download really cool other ones that teach yeah. you great things about the like local knowledge of Edinburgh, like history and otherwise.
0: Like coffee places. Cool record shops. Uh, beer. beer places <laughs> the uh geological history of arthur's seat oh yeah that's a good one it's a really great one the yeah. sectarian history of leith Yep. Uh, oh east asian food which for any australians also living in edinburgh <laughs> it's a way to find all the actual good edible stuff all the dumplings <laughs> yeah. good god so we're very honored
1: to be a part of that cohort and you can go find us at hidden tracks yay um, Ellie, I'm really running low on podcasts at the moment because I've been listening to so many. I need
0: another recommendation, so hit me. Well, Claire, I'm here to help because yes. this morning I rolled out of bed and I stumbled to the kitchen. I poured myself a cup of ambition and, <laughs> and I, I listened to Dolly Parton's America. Wow. Which is by Jad Abumrad Seems to have really taken. Oh, yeah. I'm a f- Fully fledged Dolly Parton fan now, if I wasn't before. It's so good. It's all about how Dolly Parton is this amazing person who somehow manages to unite Americans at a time when they've never been more divided. So people from the country, people from the city, LGBTQI people. The um, straightest of the straight. The straightest (laughs) of the straight. People who love guns. Just (laughs) everyone all together loving Dolly Parton um yeah it is true it is true and it's an ex- exploration of how what it is about her that manages to do that cool it's really cool and she's in it he interviews her as part no of way. it yeah yeah because yeah. his dad oh. and his dad's a doctor and he just somehow managed to become friends with dolly parton because she was his patient for a very short time after a car wow. crash <laughs> yeah and they just got along so well that's insane i
1: was thinking of her being as being so like unattainable Because she's such a character. I
0: guess so. I wouldn't think of her as like being interviewable in that way. She sounds very, very chatty and very friendly. (laughs) Like she just she's never met this guy. She's never met Jad before. And they're just having this chat in the most casual, relaxed, lovely way. It's it's a very endearing podcast oh, great. highly recommend dolly cool. dolly parton's well, america i know what i'm doing this week <laughs> yeah I'm not getting any work done <laughs> so claire what will you be teaching us about today
1: well ellie this is sort of been on my list for a while mm-hmm. but it's a big one so Ooh. it's taken me a while to get here oh i'm so excited so i'm going to talk about the uk women's suffrage movement
0: <gasps> suffragettes yes are we going to suffragettes today? yeah i'm so sorry <laughs> oh, i don't know what that reference is but it's
1: happening it's david bowie oh i didn't know that okay cut. sorry that's not cool enough hey did you know that women aren't a monolith aren't a monolith yeah so it makes talking about the history of the women's suffrage movement really hard because we're
0: not just we're not all all the
1: Yeah, just one (laughs) lump of women with the same opinions and thoughts and values and priorities.
0: Seriously? Like, hang on. Are you saying you and I are different people? Yeah, we are individuals, Ellie. And there are women out there who are
1: even different to us. What? I know. Jesus. Chaos. So, like, the historiography of the suffrage movement, Mm -hmm. like the different readings and interpretations of it through different lenses of history paint wildly different versions of it interesting and the women of the day themselves moralize themselves in ways that might not be the way that they were perceived at the time Mm -hmm. or how we would think of them okay and it's also just this like huge complex story with like so many players and like dates and it covers like a you know 80 year time span oh my god i'm going big picture um i will talk about a few specific aspects but um if there is a part of this that i mentioned in passing that you want to know more about tell us yeah we'll do a deep dive yes but first some background okay so the suffrage movement was a campaign in britain for women to have the vote okay suffrage just means the right to vote in political elections so when we talk about the suffrage movement in the uk we're mostly talking about women's suffrage, particularly the right to vote in parliamentary elections. Mm -hmm. That was the big fight. Okay. So in 1832, we have the Great Reform Act, and this actively excludes women from the electorate by defining voters as male persons. Wow. So before this, a very, very few property-owning women had been able to vote. Oh. Yes. Interesting. also, very few men... Only 3% of the adult male population could vote before this act in 1832. How many percent?
0: Three percent. Three percent. Yes. So, like, no one.
1: Yeah. So, when we say very, very few women, I literally mean, like, you could name them and count them on your fingers. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know how many of them exercised that right to vote, Mm -hmm. but they technically had it because they weren't actively excluded because of their gender until 1832 when voters were defined as men. Wow. Yes. This act didn't even bring in full male suffrage. Okay. (laughs) These male persons still had to own property valuing over 10 pounds. So it excluded pretty much all of the working class. Wow. This meant that six out of every seven men in Britain could not vote after the Great Reform Act. Oh. So only one in every seven men
0: could could vote. So a seventh of the population. A no, of the not male of population. the male population. Yeah. And I guess so a 14th of the population. And was there an age limit? Yes, it was
1: 30. Whoa! 21? I th- actually don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Men didn't achieve universal suffrage until 1918. Oh. When, spoiler alert, some of the earliest women's suffrage was achieved. Interesting. Yes. So there was a bunch of these reform acts that changed exactly how British democracy was set up and who got the right to vote. Okay. But after the first one in 1832, women were instantly like, uh, excuse me.
0: who is <laughs> me.
1: I have opinions too, bitch. Mm-hmm. So the fight for women's suffrage is largely broken up into two eras. The early days from the mid 1800s to the turn of the century. Okay. And then from like 1900 to the 1920s. So it speeds up. Yeah. Okay. And there are two types of protesters, suffragists, mm-hmm. who took what was called the constitutional approach, okay. which basically means they campaigned peacefully and legally, often using recognized political methods,
0: mm-hmm. such as
1: petitions and public meetings. Okay. They were most active in that early period, mm-hmm. but not exclusively. They were mm-hmm. active the entire time. Okay, But they were the only and dominant force up until kind of like the late, very late 1800s, 1900. Okay. So, the suffragists' main tactic was to try and introduce private members' bills to get women the right to vote. Okay. I don't really understand how that works, and you don't need to know, because it never actually worked
0: for them. Were they trying to convince individual MPs? (laughs) Yeah, to to... introduce legislation. Okay. Yes. Okay. Never happened. Never worked. Nope. Great. Great allying MPs. Yeah. I mean, there was a
1: couple of MPs who did introduce legislation, but it never passed. Oh, okay. Yeah. They also tried to work the courts to their advantage – Lily Maxwell cast a high-profile vote in Britain in 1867. She was a shop owner, and she met the property qualifications that would have made her eligible to vote had she been a man. Uh Aha. And somehow her name accidentally got added to the election (gasps) register. (gasps) Ha-ha. Yeah, and on that basis, she succeeded in voting in a by-election. Her vote was later declared illegal by the Court of Common Pleas. Jesus. Yeah. But the case gave the suffrage campaigners huge publicity. Yeah. Cool. So then they start to get more organized forming committees and unions the biggest of which is the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies the okay. NUWSS. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which was a combination of 17 national suffrage societies led by Millicent Garrett Fawcett. 17. Yeah so at that point there had already been lots of smaller ones but she unified them all into this one big wow. movement. And her husband was an MP so her she name had a lot of a bell. Millicent Yeah Millicent Fawcett was a very important suffragist. Okay. Because her husband was an MP, so she had a lot of political clout mm. and a lot of understanding of the system. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yes. So, the NUWSS becomes a leading suffragist organization with more than 200 branches and over 21,500 members by 1910. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. Almost all the leaders of the NWSS were from the upper or middle classes as well as most of its members. hmm Okay. They were trailblazers, and I mean that in the sense that they definitely helped, like, pave the way for the suffragette movement. Mm-hmm. They raised the suffrage movement to the level of national consciousness, and they made it a constant issue for Parliament mm-hmm. between 1870 and 1884. Debates on women's suffrage took place in almost every year in Parliament. Wow, brilliant! Yeah. Okay, so like, they really pushed the issue, but
0: nothing changed.
1: Not in terms of women's right to vote in a parliamentary election. Okay. Um, they did also campaign a bit on women's rights in lots of other areas, particularly education and property ownership, and there was new legislation brought in around that. Okay. So the other type of protesters, who I think are a little bit more well-known today, yes. are the suffragettes, yes. who were radical and militant and performed acts of civil disobedience to make their point. They were the second-generation suffrage movement members who came onto the scene in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. I don't mean generation mm-hmm. in terms of age women of all ages engaged mm-hmm. in action that earned them the label suffragette. Okay. But it was a swing towards more active and aggressive forms of protest that was a markedly different style from okay. the suffragists. Yes. All right. It's like direct action.
0: Yes. Yes. And
1: the name, the term suffragette was actually like a belittling, condescending term that um, politicians and the media put on them. And they just were like, cool, yeah, all right, we'll take it. <laughs> Because they were trying to make them sound like silly little girls. Okay. Which, like, some of these women were, like, in their 70s. Right. And they were like, yeah, all right, cool, fine, whatever, call us what you like. We're still going to throw rocks <laughs> through your windows. <laughs> so the most famous suffragettes are the Pankhursts, yep. Emmeline and her daughters Sylvia and Christabel. Okay. But there were many others. Great. And we have spoken about some of them before. <gasps> uh, so one of our episode 12 Boston marriage power couples, Eva Gore Booth and Esther Roper, were suffragettes. Yes. They were involved in the formation of the Lancashire and Cheshire Women's Textile and Other Workers Representation
0: Committee. Great name, <laughs> LCWTOWRC. <laughs> These names are real clunky. This reminds me of that bit in Harry Potter when Hermione creates the house spew, El- spew, yeah,
1: <laughs> Society for the Protection and something elves, elves and workers.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's
1: a bit like that. It's like oh, branding was so different then. <laughs> That focused on women's suffrage, that also included working class women. Okay, great. Yes, finally. <laughs> yes. So the Pankhurst women formed the Women's Social and Political Union in 1903, and that became one of the most famous suffragette organisations. Okay. They adopted the motto "Deeds, not words." Yes. And chained themselves to railings, set fire to public and private property. Wow. <laughs> disrupted speeches both at public meetings and in the House of Commons. They also held public meetings and published newspapers and other literature. Cool. So, violence and civil disobedience wasn't the only way women fought, though. In 1909, the Women's Tax Resistance League, the WTRL, is formed. It's a direct action group who refused to pay taxes without political representation. Great. Their founding slogan is, no vote, no tax.
0: Hang on, so women were being charged taxes? Yeah, you started to pay taxes as a woman. Okay. If you earned money, if you owned property, you still had to pay tax, but you so couldn't vote. you're a citizen enough to have to pay yep. taxes into the state, but not enough to have any say in what the like state does. this sound like another revolution? Yeah. No taxation without representation? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a very similar tactic and a um, similar issue of, yeah. like, you can't tax us if we don't have direct representation. Yeah. So, many women also tried to avoid being counted in census. census in the census. Yeah, nice. <laughs> Good save. <laughs> uh, Emily Wilding Davison avoids the census by hiding in a cupboard in the crypt of the House of Commons in
0: 1911.
1: In the crypt? Yes, a crypt no. of the House of Commons. She in a cupboard downstairs was like, can't fucking count me if you can't see me. Fair. <laughs> Which was great. Um, so... That's sort of the the methods, the people, yeah, the groups, the tactics. That's mm-hmm. what was going on. Mm-hmm. There is a couple of like specific tactics and events and issues I want to talk about. Though. Okay, okay.
0: Number one, hunger striking. Yeah, that's sort of the famous one. Hey? Yeah,
1: it's it's bonkers. Like it's just mind boggling.
0: Okay.
1: So in nineteen oh nine, things. Like, get taken to another level.
0: Okay.
1: WSPU member and Scottish artist Marion Wallace Dunlop is arrested for vandalism.
0: She's an amazing artist. Yeah, she's yeah. incredible. We've got works by her in the National Galleries of Scotland. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, she's a fucking badass. Wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: Cool. So she vandalises the House of Commons with some graffiti. Yes. Protesting. I bet it was
0: really beautiful graffiti. But she had a great yeah. ten. Of- <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, so suffragettes who, she was arrested for this and then suffragettes who were arrested felt that they should be classed as political prisoners, not as common criminals and should be treated as such because their cause was political. Yeah. They felt this was an important distinction to be made to the public about their actions Mm. as well as that you get treated better when you're a political prisoner, but it's more about the public statement you're making. Yeah. So to get this message across, Wallace Dunlop took the drastic step of refusing food. She fasted for 91 hours or a bit over three and a half days.
0: Okay.
1: Not the longest time to go without food, but the government was afraid she would die in prison and become a martyr for the cause.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So they release her because like after that three days, because they don't want, don't her to, want die. Her to die. And this is the beginning of a terrible period for women protesting their disenfranchisement. The WSPU are so impressed by the effectiveness of this tactic that they immediately adopt prison hunger strikes as an official part of their policy. Mm -hmm. So when women get arrested, they start going on hunger strikes and they get released after a few days, like not out of concern for their health, but out of concern for the power a dead suffragette would give the movement. Yeah, Which is just... mm -hmm. (sighs) But this also means that the threat of arrest is losing its power and the government can't have that. So they start force-feeding the women. It is... (sighs) It is horrific. It involves having a tube forced down your throat or nose to your stomach and a liquefied meal poured down it. Oh, God. I know people who are tube fed for medical reasons Mm -hmm. and it's uncomfortable, it's painful, it's an awful experience when it's consensual and necessary. This was non-consensual and unnecessary. Oof, Women reported being kicked and punched and held down when they resisted. Some women developed pleurisy or pneumonia as a result of a misplaced tube forcing food into their lungs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The practice was observed and studied by several physicians, and it was deemed to cause both short-term damage to the circulatory, digestive, and nervous systems, and long-term damage to the physical and mental health of the suffragettes. Oh, God. So this led to the Home Office passing the Prisoners' Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act in 1913, or the cat and mouse act as it was commonly known mm-hmm. so force feeding went on for like four years Jesus. before they did something about it this act allowed for a prisoner on hunger strike to be discharged when their strike threatened their health but for them to be rearrested and imprisoned for the remainder of their term when they had recovered Aha! Uh-huh. this way the government avoided the bad press of force feeding but it didn't have to forego imprisoning the women entirely mm-hmm. or change their status to that of a political prisoner yeah Instead, they just subjected them to this stressful back-and-forth cat-and-mouse mm-hmm. game of, like, you're released, now you're back in, now you're released. If you want to get out again, you're going to have to hunger strike again. Oh, now you're released, now you're back in. This is like um,
0: conscientious objectors. Yes. This is like conscientious objectors.
1: Yeah, it's a similar thing. So most women continued hunger striking when they were remitted to prison following their leave, mm-hmm. and after the act was introduced, force-feeding on a large scale stopped, and only women convicted of more serious crimes considered likely to repeat their offence if released were force-fed.
0: Mm-hmm. So it didn't stop
1: entirely. No. But it stopped okay. on a large scale. Okay. Hoofed. I know there's like a lot of information out there about it, but it just it shows how poorly they were treated mm. and how like patronizingly they were treated. Yeah. Okay. Like they couldn't even protest their like poor treatment in prison without people being like no. Nah. Yeah, you can take away your most basic right to like refuse food and mm. things. Mhm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's so bad yeah. <laughs> i don't like it so another major event in the later suffragette movement mm-hmm. was black friday
0: oh i've you... never heard of this really yeah really
1: wow okay that surprises me
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh dear <laughs> <laughs> because it's fucking awful mm-hmm. So
1: in 1910, the conciliation bill, which would grant suffrage for one million women who owned property over the value of 10 pounds, is passed by the commons, but it fails to become law. Oh. So in retaliation, 300 suffragettes from the WSP march on parliament. Okay. There was like a big meeting about it being held and they were like, we're going to show up and we're going to have our voices heard. Yeah. They were expecting, like, a relatively peaceful meeting. They knew there would be police there. They had had violent encounters with the police before, Mm -hmm. many times. But they were mostly just expecting to go and stand outside Parliament and yell a lot. Okay. So in 1910, a young Winston Churchill was the new Home Secretary. Interesting. According to the Metropolitan Police Commissioner of the time, Churchill ordered him to keep Pankhurst and the WSPU away from the Prime Minister at all costs, but to make no arrests. He thought if they could just push the suffragettes back long enough, they would give up.
0: He was wrong. Mm -hmm.
1: Churchill later denies making this request, of course, because it was stupid, but it set the conditions for horrific police brutality, assault, and inevitably, arrests. (sighs) This day later becomes known as Black Friday. Okay. It was awful. Okay, what happened? So they arrive at Parliament, Mm -hmm. start protesting, and the police start pushing them back, really violently okay so they had like i said they'd experienced police violence before okay. but this was a, on a particularly large scale and really brutal mm-hmm. much of the assault experienced by the women was sexual in nature uh, police kicked and punched them twisted their breasts thrust knees between their legs ah! they had their clothes ripped and their skirts pulled up to re- reveal their underwear oh my god yep police officers repeatedly threw them to the ground to exhaust them and an elderly suffragette, Georgina Solomon, was sexually assaulted by a police officer near Westminster Bridge, who then encouraged bystanders to do as they wished with her. Oh, Jesus. The attitudes were horrific. The police encouraged the crowds around them to join in the violence against the women. And many of the suffragettes suspected and later publicly claimed that the crowds were actually full of plainclothes police officers who mm-hmm. enacted the worst of the violence. Okay, interesting. The women refused to give up, and so the police just kept going, and it went on for hours. Oh, God. In the end, many of them were arrested but then released without charge so they wouldn't be able to speak in court about what happened to them. (sighs) Newspapers reported on the demonstration but not the police violence. Interesting. A lot of them, if anything, were more sympathetic towards the police and talked about how they had their their helmets knocked off their heads. Like, Mm -hmm. that was the violence the police experienced. But the women were, like, physically and sexually assaulted. Yeah, yeah. So, the death of two suffragettes have been attributed to the treatment they received on Black Friday. Mary Clark, Emmeline Pankhurst's younger sister, was present at both Black Friday and a demonstration at Downing Street on the 22nd of November. Mm -hmm. So, after a month in prison for breaking windows in Downing Street, she was released on the 23rd of December, Mm -hmm. and she died on Christmas Day of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 48. Wow. So, Emmeline blamed her death on the maltreatment she received at the two November demonstrations. Yeah. The second victim the WSPU claimed had died from maltreatment was um, Henria Williams. Mm She had given evidence to a later commission that said, One policeman, after knocking me about for a considerable time, finally took hold of me with his great strong hands like iron just over my heart. I knew that unless I made a strong effort, he would kill me. She died of a heart attack on 1st of January
0: 1911. No. Oh, no. So
1: when members of the conciliation committee that were meeting to discuss this bill... Heard the stories of the demonstrators' maltreatment, they demanded a public inquiry, okay. but Churchill refused. Ugh. So, the committee's secretary, journalist Henry Brailsford, and psychotherapist Jesse Murray collected 135 statements from demonstrators, mm-hmm. nearly all of which described acts of violence against the women. 29 of the statements also included details of violence that included indecency.
0: Jesus.
1: They published a memorandum of their findings, and they found that Henrietta Williams' death could be attributed to the events of Black Friday. So this all had an impact on the WSPU membership, many of whom no longer wanted to take part in the demonstrations. Mm. The marches to Parliament were stopped because they were doing them quite regularly, okay. and direct actions such as stone throwing and window breaking became more common because it allowed them a chance to escape before police could arrest yeah. them. Yeah,
0: okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah, so it was just a, it was just awful. Like if you read some of the first-hand accounts of women who were there, the treatment just sounds horrific and endless. It's just another way of controlling them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then the fact that it was so poorly reported on.
0: Yeah, the media was complicit. Yeah. yeah. So because
1: of the women in the WSPU were upper and middle class women with, you know, connections in high society, mm-hmm. they wrote all these public statements about it so it couldn't be swept under the rug, mm-hmm. which is good. But talking of class, Ellie. Yes. One of the issues with the suffrage movement is its representation of – working-class women. Okay. So, working-class women were involved in the very beginning. hmm There was a petition sent to Parliament in 1866, which was one of the very first petitions sent to Parliament about women's suffrage. Yeah. And that was signed by women of all classes. Okay. But working-class women weren't always included by the wealthy women who ran a lot of the organizations. Surprise, surprise. Yes. Yeah, either in the organizations themselves or included in the demands that women were making for the vote. Okay. Okay. So, because the vote was divided along class lines for men, Mm -hmm. a lot of the women were basically agitating for the vote for women based on the same rules, which would have meant that a lot of working class women would not receive the vote. Yeah. So, a lot of leaders in the suffragist and suffragette movements felt that the working class women's demands for better pay and working conditions divided attention and split the issue
0: funny isn't it it's so annoying it's a lot like feminism today exactly exactly it's like the exact same fucking thing or feminists who think that feminism shouldn't be intersectional because it distracts Mm. from what they see as the main issue which is so crazy because you need intersectionality
1: absolutely you can't ask a working-class woman to divorce her need for better working conditions from her need for the vote yeah Yeah, like it's the same issue yes because it's, it's about representation rights. and power. Yeah. yeah, One of the problems I had with researching this was how much to apply our modern standards to the behavior of women of the past. But because it's an issue we still face today mm. within modern feminist movements, I think we absolutely should be yeah. applying modern standards to these women. Because they fucking knew. Yeah. And we know now. And they knew then. They made a conscious choice to not include women who were working class women because they didn't want to split the vote, as opposed to just not thinking about them. It's not
0: that they weren't aware. And it sounds like they were happy enough to have help from working-class women. Like, it sounds like middle-class women were very happy to have working-class women along to protest. Add their names to signatures, like to petitions, so Mm -hmm. they had more signatures. But not actually fully include them in the movement. Not address the concerns they were bringing. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think we should be holding them to these standards. Definitely. Yes. So, as I said before, the (laughs) Lancashire and Cheshire Women's Textile and Other Workers' Representation Committee (laughs) did focus on women's suffrage Mm -hmm. that also included working-class women. Great. So, in 1903, this committee ran a campaign to have a candidate elected to the House of Commons from the borough of Wigan Mm -hmm. that would represent them and their concerns in the fight for suffrage. Brilliant. So, in this announcement, they said, Anyone who wishes to better the position of her fellow workers and of the thousands of women outside the ranks of the skilled cotton operatives who are being overworked and underpaid, should remember that political enfranchisement must precede industrial emancipation and that the political disabilities of women who have done incalculable harm by cheapening their labour and lowering their position in the industrial world. Yes, See, you can't divorce these issues from each other. They are the same things. And they knew. They knew that. They fucking knew. And so working-class women started taking it into their own hands Mm. and trying to deal with it. And there were some women from middle and upper classes who were trying to support that. Great. Many of the working class women had joined the WSPU in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but the increasingly militant actions dismayed a lot of their working class members because being arrested had a much more severe consequences for them. Yes. So aside from working full time, most women worked what was called a second shift of unpaid childcare and housework, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. they still do. Yep. By the way. They risked job loss, and if they were a breadwinner, losing their house from unpaid rent, yeah um, they were also treated much, much worse in prison than their middle and upper class comrades because the police knew they had no avenues for like addressing the problem yeah one suffragette, Hannah Mitchell, said in her memoirs, "No cause can be won between dinner and tea, and most of us who were married had to work with one hand tied behind us." Mm like so working class women were at a disadvantage when it came to being involved in these movements
0: bet especially if they didn't have a supportive partner yeah definitely yeah.
1: so in the autumn of 1907 one in five suffragettes leave the WSPU to wow. join yeah to join the newly formed Women's Freedom League a socialist and pacifist organization that focused on the multiple issues mm. facing working class women without asking them to engage in the same kind of risk-taking practices hey very nice yes So after this, the WSPU's leadership becomes increasingly undemocratic and dominated by a group of wealthy women. Mm -hmm. It narrows its focus from wider social reform to winning the vote on equal terms with men, and that's it. Okay. It abandons its early links with the labor movement. Mm -hmm. This shift caused many members to leave, and they felt that the WSPU's approach was more about votes for ladies than votes for women. Yes. Yes. Sounds like it. So the WSPU and the Pankhurst in particular – were just becoming, like, extremely classist and kind of always were. Yeah. At one point, Sylvia Pankhurst tried to win working-class women back to the organisation, which worked for a while. But then her sister Christabel was like, "Mm, no. And she said that they were too independent and mixed up with other causes. According to Sylvia, she added that a working women's movement was of no value. Working women were the weakest portion of the sex – their lives were too hard, their education too meagre to equip them for the contest. Oh! Which is like literally what men were saying about women at the time. They're like, oh, women aren't smart enough. They don't have the right education to do with politics. And they're just too busy
0: with all that baby making and house making Jesus. business. It's like you bitch. That is such a fucking betrayal. There's so many lessons in that. Yep. So many, you, can't, you are not allowed to just fight for civil rights for yourself. You yep. have to include... Everyone in that. Otherwise, you're being just as bad as the people who oppressed you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You were just perpetuating the same fucking systems. Yes. So, working class women agreed. And they were like, fuck you, we'll make our own organization with inclusion and a multifaceted approach to working class women's issues. Woo! So, they formed the Independent East London Federation for the Suffragettes, or the ELFS. Good title. Yeah. (laughs) The ELFS. And it flourished. (laughs) So, while a few upper and middle class women occupied leadership positions, local working class activists like Julia Skurr, Melvina Walker, Minnie Lansbury, Daisy Parsons, Jessie Payne, and Nellie Kressel took up key roles and shaped the organization. Nice. So, the Elfs moved away from violent acts, imprisonment, and hunger strikes, Mm -hmm. adopting new tactics which offered greater safety and strength in numbers for their members, as well as new opportunities to involve and support the wider community. Great. They marched through East London, published their own weekly newspaper, The Women's Dreadnought, (laughs) took delegations of working women to Westminster to lobby politicians, and held huge public meetings and opened a social centre called The Women's Hall.
0: Great. That sounds great.
1: they were awesome. So another issue of representation that is often brought up when talking about the suffrage movement is the representation of race. Mm -hmm. Yes. So there was a lot of criticism of racism when the movie Suffragette came out. Yeah. Um, I never saw it, so I don't know. I have. It's very white. <laughs> well, Britain was really white. So British society was a white society, and the movement did reflect that. Um, Dr. Samita Murkaji, a fellow at King's College in London, notes that although there were ethnic minorities in Britain at the time, there wasn't the same scale or the same questions of citizenship as there were in other countries. Okay. So the call for the vote... Was only ever split along class lines, mm-hmm. not race lines. Unlike in segregated North America. Okay. So a lot of British suffragists criticised the United States women's suffrage movement for their racism and support of segregation. Okay. No legislation that was ever proposed or ever passed ever called for the vote to be denied to someone because of their race. Okay. Class, gender, age, yes. Race,
0: no. It's not the end of it, though. No, I mean, <laughs> it's not it's that a bit simple. Like, like some women had the vote. Before 1830, just because they were rich, like and no one had thought to exclude them yet. Yes, do you know what I mean? Yes. it's kind of one of those. It's like no one had thought about race. yeah and I'm sure as, as soon as anyone had anything to gain by excluding people Absolutely. of color, that so, would have happened. There's
1: yeah, there's a lot of nuance in it, and there's some elements of it that I will talk more about later oh. in another episode when I talk about something else. Really, mm-hmm. I don't. I'm gonna, you'll see. I'm excited. But it's also not the end of it because, like, even though the U.S. was independent of Britain at the time of their suffrage movement mm. and all the racism contained in that, a lot of places weren't. So throughout a lot of active British colonies, indigenous people and black, brown and minority ethnic groups were denied full citizenship and voting rights well into the 1900s. So, not only were they denied these rights, they weren't included by women in their suffrage movements in those countries. Indigenous Australians didn't achieve universal suffrage until the 1960s, and this was a direct result of British colonialism and Mm. white supremacist policies enacted by the government and people of Australia. Yeah. And that was happening in multiple British colonies Mm. around the world. Mm. Yeah. It's really interesting. It's like, because they didn't actively exclude black and brown and ethnic minority women, People like, oh, that means they're included. It's like, Mm,
0: no. No, if
1: you don't make space for those people when they are very much oppressed Mm -hmm. in society, then you're not included.
0: In countries that you have colonised. Yeah, Yeah.
1: colonised, and when you've enslaved their ancestors, Mm -hmm. like, it's not as simple as saying, well, we didn't actively exclude them. It's like, great, but you also didn't actively include include them.
0: them. Yeah.
1: Which, again, is also not that simple, but I will talk about that another day. (laughs) So. Coming to the end of our saga, <laughs> World War I kicks off in 1914 and the NWSS and the WSP, so our main suffragist and suffragette organizations, yeah. suspend their campaigning out of respect for the struggles the nation were facing. Okay. The ELFS, on the other hand, our badass working class mm-hmm. women, continue the fight for the women's right to vote, as well as providing material support to working class communities in East London. Yes. Oh, I love these guys. They're the fucking oh. tits. They organized milk depots where families with very young children could get free milk. They opened a series of volunteer-run canteens serving nutritious food at cost price. They also opened their own cooperative toy factory, which paid a living wage to its women workers and included a crate. They're so fucking great. It's just like,
0: oh, that's how that we is do how you do it. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're awesome. So then, in February 1918, the representation of the People Act was passed, which gave all men the vote at 21, and women who owned some property the vote at 30. How much property did you have to own? I think it was over 10 pounds as well, like it used to be for men. Was that a lot? Yeah, it wasn't insubstantial. Okay. So, although this added 8.5 million women to the electoral register, it represented less than half of the adult women in the UK. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so still not universal suffrage. No. Many former suffragettes and suffragists got to work immediately on the campaign, which the ELFS had continued the entire time, Mm -hmm. to extend the vote to women under 30 and those over 30 who had been excluded for financial reasons, Yes, many of whom were domestic servants. Yeah. They found victory at last in 1928 when the Equal Franchise Act finally awarded women the vote on equal terms to men at age 21. 1928? Yeah. God, that's late. The representation of the People Act in 1969 lowered the voting aid from 21 to 18, uh-huh. taking effect from 1970. Okay. So it's yeah.
0: been the way it is now since, since 1970. Na- okay. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, 1928
1: seems really late. So a lot of people, are uh, not argue, but it's seen as one of the reasons Britain never had a later revolution is because they did sort of slowly keep giving out the vote. Yeah. Legally this way so instead of having to really fight for it although women really fucking fought for it but instead of having like large sections of the population not being able to vote and then having a huge revolution they did kind of give out the vote drip by drip drip by drip yeah Yeah. okay so there's this kind of narrative that exists now and existed even then that women were either or you were either a suffragist or a suffragette Mm -hmm. but a lot of women claimed membership to both groups And as Laura E. Nim Mayhall lays out in an excellent article that I read. Yeah. um, It was a dichotomy that the WSPU perpetuated to try and control the narrative and define a very narrow concept of militancy Mm. that only included their activities, Mm -hmm. but excluded things like tax and census evasion. Mm. She says that even if it be granted that the polarities of constitutional and militant mark the boundaries of the suffrage movement... There remains a significant and largely unexamined continuum of thought and activity between the two. Great. So, okay. they, yeah, like they, they talked to each other. And yeah, they, it yeah. just wasn't as simple as yeah. suffragists and suffragettes. Even though that's how I just laid it all out for you, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, just for ease of understanding. Yeah. yeah.
1: After World War One, a lot of the wealthiest suffragists and suffragettes wrote memoirs, mm-hmm. so they strongly control the narrative around their actions. Okay. And Pankhurst descendant Rita noted that. It would appear that the suffragettes have hijacked the movement's image as they hijacked the action at the time. Ooh, Rita. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is true. So like they were the loudest and the flashiest, but a lot of historians are like, actually their actions didn't contribute a huge amount to gaining the vote because they were so disruptive. Yeah. They like, they made a bigger polarity Mm. between people's opinions of the Mm. issue because they were so extreme. Whereas suffragists with their slow plotting and using political methods got there in the end got there in the end like i don't know that i agree with that necessarily and i just i fucking love suffragettes because i just love women taking up space in that way and being aggressive in that way yeah but i just think it's interesting that it's never as simple as one side versus the other No, of course not yeah
0: i mean they wanted the same
1: similar things yeah
0: yeah so we have the vote now which is great
1: but not everyone does refugees don't have the vote Mm -hmm. uh
0: I actually European citizens don't have the vote. Yeah, I don't have the vote in this country. Yes, so true. So I'm, I'm here. I have the vote yes. as an Australian, yes. weirdly. So I'm a Hungarian citizen and I can't vote in the UK, which is the country that I've made my home. Yep. Um, and other European citizens can't either. So yep. we're about to have a general election in the UK, which will dramatically
1: is, impact you. Yeah,
0: it's essentially a, an election about Brexit, which... Will have a huge impact on on my life um, if we leave the UK and other European citizens, and none of us can vote in it. Yep. So that's not great.
1: No, it's terrible. And uh, people in prison can't vote. Oh, I hate that. Yep. Homeless people can't vote.
0: Homeless people can't vote. If you don't have an address,
1: jeez, You're not part of the electorate and therefore you can't vote. There's still a lot to get out there and fight for, so take your inspiration from suffragists and suffragettes and go and write some petitions or throw a rock through a window.
0: support that (laughs) watch out (laughs) yeah (laughs) thank you claire that was brilliant thanks so ellie what are you going to be teaching me about today well claire do you remember remember what day it was on tuesday (laughs) my brother's birthday oh really yeah the 5th of november (laughs) Well, I'm going to tell you about Tim's birthday. Yay! Yay! Happy (laughs) birthday, Tim. (laughs) Just joking, Tim. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as well as being Tim's birthday, it was also the 5th of November, which is... Guy Fawkes Day. Yes! Bonfire night. Yes! Lots of random fireworks going off. Yes! So, as far as I know, it's not a massive thing in Australia, I never really did it when I did. You do it when you were a kid? No, I I, talked. I talked to my parents today, and Mum said that she used to. They used to do like Catherine wheels in the backyard, cute. And sometimes they'd have a bonfire, but they never like did anything bigger than that. And my dad's mum used to let him buy tiny, tiny little like rocket crackers. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And she had to supervise him very carefully (laughs) on the concrete while he said he stuck three together so that they'd go boom and then boom and then boom. So I think it's a little bit of a thing in Australia. But in the UK, it's a massive deal. People love it. So they get together. They light bonfires. They set off fireworks, which you can buy legally here. Anywhere.
1: In shops. What? The, like, computer repair
0: shop downstairs for me sells fireworks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. There you go. Um, people <laughs> – I've seen people throw fireworks at buses on Leithwalk. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty intense. Oh, no. <laughs> and in some parts of the UK, bonfire night is even more extravagant than that. I was chatting to this really lovely PhD student slash journalist who works in my office. Her name's Katie, and she's from the town of Lewis in East Sussex. I don't know if you've ever heard about this, but on the 5th of November in Lewis, people dress up, parade through the streets with burning crosses, which isn't a great look. No. No. Um, They burn effigies of anyone and anything that they're angry with that year. Do you want to guess who it might have been this year? Does his name begin with B and end with I'm a loser? Yeah. (laughs) Claire is correct. (laughs) It was Boris Johnson um, and Jacob Rees-Mogg. Uh, but they always burn an effigy of Guy Fawkes as well. Yes. They do all of this to mark the day in 1605 when Guy Fawkes, along with 12 other conspirators, tried to blow up British Parliament. Boom. But Claire, who was Guy Fawkes and why did he want to blow up Parliament? Isn't he just a disembodied face that people wear as a mask? Close. <laughs> <laughs> but no. No. Tell me. Let's go on a journey together. Yay. Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So first, we have to go way back in time—almost <laughs> five hundred years. So the year is 1570, and Pope Pius V is sitting in his very lush bedroom at the Vatican. Ooh. He's uh, he has got his slippered feet resting on a pillow with a silk embroidery of a pizza on it. <laughs> This is historical the official, fact. The yes. official symbol of Vatican. Some, I've done some very deep research. Well, we were there when we time yeah, travelled. So exactly, we know yes. He's wearing a little red hat and stroking his snowy white beard, <laughs> and he's thinking about exactly how he wants to word a papal bull declaring Elizabeth, the pretended Queen of England and the servant of crime, to be a Protestant <gasps> and therefore dun, dun, dun. a heretic So, this bull will release all of her subjects from any allegiance to her, even when they have sworn oaths to her, and it excommunicates anyone that obeys her orders. Whoa, that's intense! Yes, so he's excommunicated Elizabeth, but he's also saying, if you obey Elizabeth, I will also excommunicate you. Whoa, and you now no longer owe fealty to the crown. Exactly. Shit! So, basically, this is a call to arms for British Catholics, opening the door for them to try and depose Elizabeth. Bye-bye, Lizzie. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth, who really just wanted to spend her queenship flirting with men with great calves, (laughs) wasn't super chuffed about this. So in response, Elizabeth put in place harsher laws against Jesuit priests who were kind of Catholic missionaries at the time. Do you know much about them? No, but did you not talk about this? Talk yes, about priest holes? Exactly. This yeah. is very closely connected to that. This is episode five. Yeah, <laughs> episode five. Episode five. Um, and then in 1558, she passed the Recusancy Acts, which meant that anyone who didn't attend a Protestant service on a Sunday was branded a recuser or an objector I'm sorry I just want to lie in yeah totally I don't I don't want to start a war I just want to sleep but Claire if if you want to do that you have to pay a chunky fine oh of course sorry if I have money I'm allowed to avoid the law correct forgot that (laughs) (laughs) so while Elizabeth I was on the throne British Catholics were in a really awkward position they had to choose between their country and their faith but Elizabeth I wasn't immortal British Catholics saw a light at the end of the tunnel with the likely new king, James VI of Scotland. James I of England. Correct. Yes. Gotcha. So we're back at James. I just can't keep away. I just love it. You're obsessed. (laughs) Why don't you just go marry him, Ellie? Go on. (laughs) No, No, thank you. So as we talked about in the last episode, James was the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Who was a Catholic martyr. So like she's really yeah. famous for being a super Catholic lady. Yep. So super Catholic. Super Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so even though James was a Protestant, British Catholics thought that he might be a bit more sympathetic to them than Elizabeth yeah. because of his mum. But they were wrong. <laughs> yeah, dude was kind of a dick. Yeah. So James took the throne of England in 1603 after Elizabeth died. At first, he eased up on the recusants, so the people who were refusing to go to Protestant. So I can take my nap without paying my fee. Correct. Great. So he paused all collection of fines. He didn't take back the law, but he just stopped enforcing it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But that didn't last very long. By the summer of 1604, the Recusancy Act still hadn't been repealed and British Catholics were getting the very clear message from James that he didn't really want to help them at all. Right. The British Catholics felt betrayed and a group of headstrong young men from some of the most prominent Catholic families in England decided to do something explosive about it. (laughs) (laughs) Boom. So Robert Catesby a young lord from Warwickshire, was the brains of the operation. He assembled a ragtag bunch of Catholics, including Thomas Winter, John Wright, Thomas Percy, and Guy Fawkes at the Duck and Drake Inn in London. Oh, classic. The Duck and Drake. What a great place. Nice. Um, So he sat them down to convince them to help him enact his grand plan to blow up the Houses of Parliament. Pew, pew. Pew, pew, pew. Now, you'd think, because it's called Guy Fawkes Day, that Guy Fawkes would be the leader. That's what I thought. Yeah. For sure. Or I thought he acted on his own or something. I don't know what I thought. But he was actually more like the explosives expert. Oh, is he the one who, like, got
1: caught with his hand in the yeah. gunpowder barrels? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. Yes, I love that. Yes, he was. Poor Guy Fawkes. <laughs> so Fawkes was Catholic. But he wasn't from a prominent family. He was just a dude from York, from a Catholic family, from like right. a normal, just a run everyday, of male generic Catholic. <laughs> exactly. He had spent the last 10 years fighting for the Catholic Spanish against the Protestant Dutch in the Eighty Years' War. And he was a dab hand with a barrel of gunpowder. So Catesby's plan went like this they would, one, rent a little house inside the Houses of Parliament complex. Which was quite easy to do in 1605 because it was just like a rabbit warren of shops and houses and pubs. Oh. It wasn't like what it is today. Yeah. It was like kind of just like another bit of London yeah. that you could be in if you were a normal person. Two, stock it with 36 barrels of gunpowder, which is a lot of gunpowder. Yeah. That is enough to just completely total a building as Shit. big as the house's apartment, which had like foot walls and was made of stone it was a ridiculous amount of gunpowder then three wait for the state opening of parliament so you know how we were talking about prorogations yes and at the end of a prorogation of parliament when you want to open a new one you have a whole fanfare a whole thing the carry that stick mm -hmm. yeah the monarch has to open parliament so just recently the queen did the state opening of parliament today keep that stupid speech yeah So they wanted to wait for the 1605 state opening of parliament because that would mean that the king, the queen, the royal family, every single lord, bishop, diplomat, anyone with any power in England would all be sitting in the same room all together. This is a really good plan. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Then four, they would light a big fuse. Five, they would blow them all to smithereens. And six, Guy Fawkes would roll away across the river and leave the country. <laughs> Ta-da! Plan. So, so much of this reads like a a wily wily coyote? I know moment. it's a bit mental. <laughs> yeah. By killing every single important person in England, the plotters hoped to create panic, chaos, and a power vacuum that would allow them to kidnap James's daughter, the Princess Elizabeth, who for some reason they just thought they could make into their little puppet. Catholic puppet. She wasn't Catholic. She was just a person. I don't know what was going on. Anyway. No, they're muddying the waters now. I liked the mm. simple blow them up and leave plan. Yeah. Yeah. You're quite, actually, you're quite right. <laughs> because that part of the plan, the kidnap Princess Elizabeth part of the plan, was the thing that ended up getting them caught. So.
1: Fools. Every,
0: fools overreaching yeah know your limits guys Mm -hmm. so everything went pretty smoothly at first one of the plotters had friends in high places and managed to gain a position very ironically as a ceremonial parliamentary guard (laughs) (laughs) Mm shman infiltrate the power structure Mm -hmm. so that gave him an excuse to rent lodgings in westminster where he installed the munitions expert Guy Fawkes as his servant. I'm doing funny <laughs> quotes. Um, Then they heard that there was storage space going up for rent directly under the room where everyone would be sitting on the 5th of November for the state opening of parliament. Oh, this is so annoying. It feels like it was supposed to work. Yes. Like everything was in their favour. It seems like providence, right? It seems like God is opening the door and leading the way. And their hubris closed that door very fast. Yes. So they took the storage space and they stocked it with 36 barrels of gunpowder, which, as we discussed, <laughs> were many gunpowders, gun enough to just completely fuck everything up and kill everyone. Amazing. Then, they waited. There was this complicated thing where they prorogued parliament and they were going to, much like now, they were going to wow. bring it back in February, but then... Something happened, and then there was a plague, and then I just all this stuff. So it kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed. So did all men just have to keep working as a parliamentary? Yeah. Girl. <laughs> exactly, Guy Fawkes. That'll to warn keep you. I'm just sitting here protecting these barrels of wine. fine. <laughs> <laughs> so they were there, they were waiting and waiting for ages, and because they had more time, um, the other members of the plotting group, so not Guy Fawkes, the other ones, yeah. Rode around the country telling Catholic lords all about the plan. Oh, God, yes. And trying to rouse them up for a revolution. Loose lips sink ships. Exactly, Claire. So the thing was, not all of the Catholics in Britain at the time were super keen to kill the king. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's murder. It's yeah. pretty anti, it's like it's not a
1: very Catholic thing to do. And they weren't just killing the king, they were killing everyone like hundreds of people imagine the chaos that would have ensued post power vacuum
0: exactly exactly in the power vacuum yeah it would have been terrible and on top of that a lot of these catholic lords had mates who would be sitting in Parliament on the fifth mm. of. There were Catholic lords you who were around to in, yeah telling the Catholics who were the least disadvantaged by this whole scenario. It's mm. like their lords; they do have a level yeah, of power. They've power, and also they will die. Like they'll be sitting in Parliament, <laughs> or their friends will be sitting in Parliament, and they'll get blown up. But can you imagine if just no Catholic lords showed up on that day? How it have looked? <laughs> where's Geoffrey? Where's wait, where's all the other <laughs> Catholic ones? <laughs> <laughs> this seems unsafe. <laughs> So these Catholics just wanted to keep their heads down and their priest holes nice and tidy, <laughs> and wait <laid> it out.
1: <laughs>
0: Please go listen to episode
1: five for context.
0: <laughs> so unsurprisingly, someone dobbed in the plot. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So there's this thing called the Monteagle letter. It's really famous, but no one really knows where it came from or who wrote it. I bet it was Guy Fawkes who just got so fucking bored of sitting down there. He's like, maybe if I just end this nonsense, I can go home. <laughs> so the story goes that on the 26th of October, 1605, William Parker, the fourth Baron of Monteagle and recusant Catholic, was just chilling at home. Maybe he had his feet up in front of the fire. Maybe he had some port. What was embroidered on his pillow? Um, a roast beef. Yeah. <laughs> Toad in the hole. (laughs) Toad in the hole. A Yorkshire pudding. (laughs) (laughs) So then his servant rushes into the room, saying that a masked stranger had given him a letter to give to Monteagle. The letter said, My lord, out of the love I bear to some of your friends, I have a care of your preservation. Therefore, I would advise you, as you tender your life, to devise some excuse to shift your attendance at this parliament, for God and man hath concurred to punish the wickedness of this time. Bam, bam, bam. Damn. I know. It's a really intense letter. Yeah. So now, Montego was a Catholic, but he wasn't the kind of man to let his faith get in the way of his career. Oh, never. So instead of keeping the letter to himself and just choosing to not go to Parliament that day, he rode directly to the king's right-hand man, the Secretary of State, Robert Cecil, and showed the letter to him. It didn't take Monteagle, Cecil in King James very long to work out that someone was going to try and blow up Parliament on the 5th of November. Yeah, I mean, they're they just like, it's, it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. The letter says, I'm going to strike a blow. to like it's <laughs> Yeah, it also says like God
1: and man have conspired. Yeah, it's like,
0: me, I on. have conspired. Yeah, I did it. <laughs> <It's> me. <laughs> so it's still the 26th of October, and right. instead of, Searching the Westminster buildings for gunpowder immediately, they waited for nine days. No one really knows right. why. Then, on the 4th of November, the night before the state opening of Parliament, they sent the parliamentary guards to have a little squiz. Okay. Why did they wait? So, some people think they were waiting for the moment of highest drama so that they could what? craft yeah so they could craft this into an absolute killer of an anti-catholic PR campaign so shit. they were like crafting a story they could have just immediately gone down found guy Fawkes, who was literally sitting there with 36 barrels of gunpowder <laughs> for, for months and stopped him but instead they waited till the night before parliament to make a better story shit mm-hmm. yeah so it's midnight on the 4th of november the parliamentary guards head down to the cellars underneath Parliament to look for anything weird. They find Guy Fawkes fully dressed with thirty-six suspicious barrels, a fuse, and a lamp. <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, guy." They're like, "Yeah, that's fine. Seems legit. You seem like a nice guy." What is And they go back upstairs and say everything is fine. What? Truly? No. Truly. Then the story goes that King James, in his wisdom, told them to go down again and check just one last time. So they do. They meet Guy Fawkes again with his 36 barrels, and this time they look inside the barrels. (laughs) It's like like, having a proper look. (laughs) "Ah." And then they arrest Guy Fawkes, and the plot is foiled. That's the story. So why do we celebrate it on the 5th of November if it happened on the night of the 4th? That's a really good question. I think because they were intending to blow up Parliament on the 5th of November. Right. That would have been the day when everyone died. So they celebrate that day rather than the day the plot was foiled. Okay. An announcement goes out that a Catholic plot to blow up Parliament has been foiled. So they put that message out like right away. People in London light bonfires in the streets and they have all night parties and they're all really happy. So people start questioning Guy Fawkes, and he's not telling them anything. He's he's a soldier; like he's pretty tough. Yeah. The king goes in personally and questions Guy Fawkes, who is unrepentant um, and refuses to tell him anything. Then, I him. yeah, I, I respect that loyalty totally. And then the king orders that he be tortured on the rack, which is like the most no. horrible thing you can Isn't do. It like with stretches him? you in mm. all the directions it and like does. dislocates all your bones. It's horrific. It's completely horrific. And then he divulges the details of the plot because who the hell wouldn't? Yeah. So he tells them all about the plot. He tells them who's involved, blah, de blah. The other plotters who are still riding around the country trying to stir up a Catholic rebellion are caught. Many of them die, including the ringleader Robert Catesby, in a Ned Kelly-style shootout. (laughs) I know, at a place called Holbert House. On the border of Staffordshire. It's a ridiculous story. So I mean it's sad. It's really sad. So they're riding around the country. Everyone's refusing to help them and basically treating them like idiots. Because they kind kind of are. are. Um and they but they just are determined to see this thing through even though they know it's over. They know it's over. And they end up at this house and they're like, okay, we still have this we have a barrel of gunpowder, so we can we can fight at least. Mm. We can fight to the end, and then they realize the gunpowder is wet, and they try to dry it out in front of the fire. My God! I mean, they it's, don't. It's, it's just the most obvious so mistake. Stupid. It's so stupid. It's almost like a farce. But they don't die. It does explode. One of them is blinded, oh my God. and they're all burnt, but they don't die. And then the soldiers like the soldiers come and they have all they have is swords and they just run out and they get shot and they die it's horrible i'm kind of glad we call it guy fawkes day a guy fawkes night because it's like it seems like the only smart one in this whole scenario <laughs> <laughs> it might be so the ones who aren't killed in this shootout are taken down to the tower of london to be questioned then along with guy fawkes they are hung drawn and courted oh which is just disgusting so later that year, not very long after they foiled the plot, Parliament passed the Popish Recusants Act of 1605. The Act forbade Roman Catholics from practicing the professions of law and medicine and from acting as a guardian or trustee. And it allowed magistrates to search their houses for arms at any time of day or night. No fuss, no muss. Recusants were to be fined £60 or to forfeit two-thirds of their land if they did not receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, so go to a um, Protestant, uh, you know, call it a mass, yeah, Protestant service, at least once a year. And the act made it high treason to obey the authority of Rome rather than the king. Wow. So that's it. Evil popish plot foiled thanks to the quick thinking of Protestant King James Rejoicing, that echoes down the centuries. Bonfires where we burn effigies of Catholic Guy Fawkes, the man who sought to blow Protestant England to high heaven. As I was researching this, all I could think about was nine eleven, and how Interesting. yeah, and how the U.S. government nurtured the anti-Muslim sentiment that sprang out of that to yeah. help justify the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's just exactly the same thing. They also
1: directly funded the Mujahideen who then well, yeah. became the Taliban, so...
0: Totally. I mean, i not...
1: Like, it's not a it's-your-fault thing. It's just a...
0: It just really feels like the same story. It's like you've got a group in England who are causing you problems and who want you gone. Mm. So how do you disempower them? Well, why don't you let them get close to feeling like they might... Be able to fight back. So some people think that Cecil, who was the Secretary of State to King yeah. James, knew about this plot like years. it and that's why they were so happy to wait to the last mm-hmm. second, because they actually knew mm-hmm. all the details yeah. anyway. He let it happen so that he could craft a strong narrative to make it look like King James was really clever and that Protestantism was was what God wanted. It would always England. win out in the end. Exactly. Exactly. So Guy Fawkes Night, it was this thing. I I don't know why. I thought he was like an anti-monarchist or something, and I just thought it was like a silly thing that people did on the 5th of November. Because you don't really interrogate it very much if it's something that's just been around for that long. But in reality, it has deep roots in a really nasty campaign of anti-Catholicism that led to Catholics being treated like not citizens of this country for a really long time. And that still has, I mean, terrible consequences now in in Northern Ireland and Mm -hmm. and other places where sectarianism is still really dangerous and really terrible. Yeah. I just hadn't thought that it was connected to that at all. And I'm really glad I, I had a little look and, and that's what it is. That's so interesting. Yeah. I, never,
1: yeah. I never knew all the details of that. No? And who Guy Fawkes really was.
0: No. The smartest
1: yeah. of the lot. The
0: smartest <laughs> of... Just a guy who knew about explosives. Just wanted to blow some stuff up. If you want to hear more history tidbits,
1: you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe so other
0: history buffs can find us. If you want to know what sources we used, please go to our SoundCloud page. The link is in the description. Today's homework is to find out who doesn't
1: have voting rights in your area, and what is being done to change that.